Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our policy polls on enhancing deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Please welcome our speakers, Patty Jane Geller, Policy Analyst in Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense, and Brett Sadler, Senior Fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us today for our event on enhancing deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, I'm Patty Jane Geller, a nuclear deterrence analyst here, uh, joined by my colleague Brent Sadler, who's our uh, senior fellow for naval warfare um, and advanced technology. And so today we're going to be talking about um, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which was established by Congress last year to uh, consolidate and rebalance our investments in the Indo-Pacific. Um, we're also going to focus a bit on defense of Guam in particular. Um, I recently wrote a paper on the topic that I believe you should be able to access during the chat, and um, I think Brent has some commentary that we'll be posting on, on the topic as well. Um, so we have 30 minutes today, so we're going to jump right into it. Um, Brent, if you would start us off, um, if you can give us some background on, on the PDI, you know, what it is, uh, what we're looking at with Guam. Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, PJ. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, first off, on Guam. For those that may not be as familiar with the geography or how Guam fits into the operational and the economic landscape in the Western Pacific, it really is a hub, both uh, militarily and economically, in the Western Pacific. It sits right about a little under 3,000 miles from all of the hot spots in the East Asian theater. Um, another part of that's important to reiterate about Guam is it is also close enough to a lot of our partners in the region, uh, like Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and Malaysia that also visit with their military forces as well as conduct operations and exercises with our forces there. It's not right in the thick of things in the South and the East China Sea. It's far enough away where they can actually practice more sensitive operations and exercises. And, uh, and that's an important point because it's also a hub for our partners in the region, which is a key element of the national defense strategy. The other thing just to reiterate, and it can get lost because it is on the other side of the dateline, that actually Guam is homeland USA. And there's about 168,000 US citizens that live there. So the defense of Guam is also an imperative for US citizens' security and safety. Uh, as far as, as Patty Jane was mentioning about the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, PDI, uh, this is, I would say, an ongoing effort. It's about 10 years. It started back, some of you may recall, the Defense Strategic Guidance, the DSG, otherwise known as the Rebalance to Asia-Pacific. So many of these initiatives, needs, and desires, posture, presence, and operations uh, exercises particularly, they go back 10 years in the operational design and the planning for Indo-Pacific Command. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily anything new, but what is new is a re-energized effort on the part of Congress to enable and to fund, and in this case, uh, we, what we've seen is the Senate's actually willing to go above the president's proposed budget and, it, and basically elevate the top line. And this is a key thing, because to, even with the rebalance, when, we were, when I was at PACOM and we were trying to get additional funds to rebalance our forces, 
it's the services, it's the Air Force, the Army, Marine Corps, and the Navy that actually pay that bill. And it usually comes out of their budget that's already programmed. And that's what you saw, and that's why there was so much angst on this, this year's proposal. Uh, a vast majority of the $5.1 billion that the president proposed actually is an acquisition. An acquisition is nothing that what Indopaycom was requesting. It's, it's very, very small. About $300 million of what's in that acquisition actually answers what Indopaycom was seeking. Uh, so the important thing on that, the lesson to take is, the services actually pay this bill. So if you're going to move money to a deterrence initiative like PDI, it has to be on top of what's being programmed by the services, because they're the ones that actually manage it. Uh, a couple of other points of this, uh, when the budget came forward this year, uh, there was a, a line of accounting for logistics and enablers. So this is information, secure, uh, information operations as well as intelligence. That entire line item was, was, re, was removed from the president's proposed budget. And this is a key thing which I hope we'll see get put back in and that $700 million that's being considered on top for uh, addressing unfunded requests from Indopaycom. Uh, I think that's pretty much about it on the PDI. There's some historical we can kind of reflect on later, but I'll turn it back over to you, PJ. Hey, can I just ask you one follow-up yeah. question? Um, this logistics and enablers line, um, why, is, why is that important to prioritize in the PDI uh, as opposed to kind of the more ac acquisition stuff that we saw in the budget? Well, a couple of things. So first, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, the acquisition is not appropriate for something from Indopaycom. That's, that's something that should be programmed in the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army's budgets, their top line. Not the PDI itself. Not the PDI. And the PDI is a, a near-term deterrence, and it's informed by the operational plans. And while the overall force structure, the man train and equip mission of like the Navy and the, the Army uh, are a part of that, really what Admiral Davidson and what Indopaycom and before it, Admiral Harris, it goes back three commanders, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get that forward presence, that forward posture. And in order to do that better, you need to have better information that you can also share with your partners in the region, your allies. And there are a couple of items in this, this, item, this line item, the logistics and the enablers, and I stress the enablers, that actually are very, very key to having your forces move in that first island chain. This is the Philippines uh, and as well as the southern Ryukyu Islands in, in uh, Japan and Malaysia for that matter. If you're going to operate and be in there, you have to understand uh, what you're dealing with out on the sea and in the air and below the sea. And these enablers are key to that. Great. Um, so I think that gives me a good segue to go turn back to Guam for a bit. Um, you know, we're in great power competition. We're trying to rebalance to the Indo-Pacific and work on this PDI because of um, the, the Chinese threat that, that we all know is growing. Um, we've heard our commanders say that um, we don't know when China is going to decide when it's time to uh, go ahead and take back Taiwan. And the question is, um, is the United States ready? Um, and as you discussed, um, Guam is of strategic importance in any, any conflict with China. But um, what I want to talk about is how Guam is becoming increasingly threatened and the importance of um, developing this advanced missile defense system on Guam that was um, part of the original uh, PDI request um, or included in the PDI last year. Um, we know that China is advancing its uh, regional capabilities. Um, it's DF-26 ballistic missile um, can strike Guam with precision. DF-17 can also range Guam and, and maybe carry a hypersonic weapon. Um, cruise missile capability is advancing, and 
most, if not all, of its missiles in the region can also carry nuclear weapons. Uh, Admiral Richard actually said that um, China can employ nearly any nuclear strategy that it wants to in the region, um, which gives it the ability to backstop its, its conventional forces in a conflict. Um, so I think for these reasons, which is why Admiral Davidson, uh, the previous Indo-PACOM commander, has been saying that Guam is no longer a place to just fight from, but also we're going to need to fight for it. Um, and not only because we have these 170,000 citizens on Guam, I, I'm glad you drove in that point about how it's U.S. homeland, but um, the strategic location as well. It's, it's far enough away from Chinese, um, China's arsenal of short-range missiles, um, but uh, close enough to be able to provide uh, logistical support. The goes back to your logistics and, and enablers uh, point earlier. Um, so I think it's for these reasons that an advanced missile defense on Guam has actually been on the Indo-PACOM's unfunded priorities list uh, for the last three years. Um, in particular, so Admiral Davidson and then now Admiral uh, Aquilino has requested a, a persistent, uh, permanent 360-degree um, missile defense capability on Guam that can respond to any um, ballistic or cruise missile. Last year, the, the SASC, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee, um, finally got the ball rolling here, or tried to in their uh, NDAA by adding in about uh, $77 million into the first PDI for uh, land-based SM3 interceptors on Guam. Um, they knew that we would need at least those, those advanced interceptors. Um, but the, I guess the House didn't want that money, so we, we ended up with a bill that just um, required further study on, on Guam. What kind of missile defense should we put in there? Uh, even though we have been hearing about it from Indo-PACOM for a few years now. Um, and this year's budget kind of does the same thing. It requests $118 million for Guam, um, but that's not, uh, not even half of what was in uh, Indo-PACOM's original request that we got this spring, um, the Section 1251 report, which was closer to, I think it was $350 million. Um, and neither does the budget actually commit to what kind of system that, that we're going to develop on Guam for missile defense. Um, the, the, there was $40 million in procurement request for uh, general parts that could uh, apply to any defense system, but um, nothing specific. And it's for that reason that the House Appropriations Committee um, didn't, didn't give that $40 and $40 million in procurement funding. Uh, you know, I, I'll explain later that I think we should get that $350 million in, but I, you know, I think it makes sense that um, the House didn't want to fund something that was undefined. Um, and so the reason that um, moving forward with Guam defense is so important is um, not just because, or is because time is of the essence for defending Guam. Um, Admiral Davidson has said that uh, China might try to change the status quo in the region within the next six years, and uh, Admiral Aquilino said the threat is closer than we think. Um, so that's why I think we need to get moving. And it's not just about protecting U.S. forces and people. It's also about deterrence. Um, if we have missile defense on Guam, China might uh, um, think twice before um, deciding to attack because um, Guam, they, missile defense can help convince China that their attack will fail. Even if maybe they can penetrate our missile defense systems, doing so would require uh, depleting their offensive forces. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's an important capability. Um, I, I'll want to talk about later, you know, what exactly we should build, but um, you, you've told me that you've had some ideas about some things we can do it now in the short term. Oh, yeah. So, so the defense of Guam from, 
from a, a ballistic missile and cruise missile threat. Uh, it's only been growing, but it's been around for, for well over a decade. Uh, and so from my, from my time at PACOM back in 2012 to 15, we actually looked at this, and there actually are proposals that are there that are approved that just needs to get moved forward. And to quote Armand Harris, is, get on with it. Uh, so his article in Breaking Defense earlier in July 9th really kind of makes the case. He's, uh, he, he's really talking about Aegis Ashore as one of the options, and there's a, there's a requirement for one emplacement of Aegis Ashore in Guam. Uh, and he rightfully addresses a concern with Aegis Ashore, and that is, is it able to integrate the THAAD battery that's there on Guam, as well as with air operations, maybe other local naval you know, BMD assets, can it actually coordinate? And really the, the name of the game for, for defense is integrated air and missile defense. And so all of those assets and their sensors and their, and their munitions need to be all coordinated and considered as a whole. They have different uh, radar horizons, they have different uh, capabilities and fidelity. Uh, and so a couple of things I looked at in the past and things that are here right now, uh, again, I go back to the reason that that is there was that we had a crisis with North Korea and that that battery was actually not supposed to come out of co continental United States, but because of the time we were able to move it and it didn't have all its missiles, and there it is still to this day. So from 2013, under an urgent request, an RFF, for those out there that may know that term, a request for forces, it's been there since. Um, so if we don't get ages ashore, that like, takes about three years to build, you're going to have to need, in order to be inside this Davidson window, Admiral Davidson window, uh, to deter China in the near term, you need something there sooner. A couple of things to consider. Uh, first, you've got three cruisers that are being considered for decommission that are BMD capable. Now those cruisers, you could take one and you could anchor it in Apra Harbor or off the coast of Guam, not use it as a, a gray hull that's hunting for submarines, it doesn't mitigate the full cost that Navy's trying to get rid of by decommissioning it next year, but at least you, you focus in on what's above the waterline, the sensor and the, the missile tubes, the VLS, 122-plus missile tubes. That's a significant asset that you could put there, you could move there in, in a couple weeks. And there, there's your temporary Aegis Ashore. Uh, the other one to consider, and this was one that was looked at also in, back in 2013, is you have a cruise missile threat coming from Chinese submarine ships and aircraft that's very real. And THAAD and Patriot batteries and using an Aegis Ashore to shoot down cruise missiles may not be the best use of your bullets. A better use could be a repurposing of what's known as an Army uh, asset, CRAM, counter rocket artillery mortar. And there's that, that missile part, that rocket part is the key part, and that looks like the failing system that's on our ships for point defense. So why not take that out of the bunkers or out of the warehouses, repurpose it to Guam for a near-term cruise missile defense? Again, it's very close in, and you'd only turn it on when you know you've got a threat that's inbound. Mm, those are interesting ideas, and I, I didn't really know that we've been studying um, defense of Guam since 2013. Is, is that what you mentioned before? And I, I'm up here saying it's been three years that it's been on the Indo-PACOM unfunded priorities list, but I guess it's been longer, and, and that's that battery that's there now, that was, was that meant for, that was meant for North Korea, not the Chinese threat. That's right. So it's probably um, not good enough for, for China, is that, is that right? Uh, not necessarily. It, it depends on the size of the threat. And again, it's not that you're going to keep Guam functional operationally throughout a saturation attack. There's going to be periods of time when the airfield or the port or the roads in between Anderson Air, 
Air Force Base to the north of the island and what's known as Big Navy towards the middle of the island that are going to be, you know, offline. But you need to have assets on island that mitigate the amount of damage that's done so that you can repair and recover quicker. So if you didn't have THAAD, how many missiles would have got, are now going to go and impact the airfield in Anderson Base? If you have it, it reduces that. But the other part of it is it does go into that the, the focus really should be on deterrence. The fact that you're willing to put assets on Guam, it changes the Chinese calculation, their force on force. How many missiles do they need to employ? And they're not just going to use ballistic missiles. They'll use cruise missiles as well to try to saturate and overwhelm our defenses. Uh, but they're going to have to do it periodically because there are going to be survivors. There's going to be recovery uh, efforts. And that airfield and those roads and those ports are going to come back. So they're going to have to do it again. That feeds into the deterrence equation yes. that that missile defense um, provides us on Guam, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, I like your idea about um, parking our Aegis cruiser, cruisers outside of Guam. So the plan right now is to uh, decommission those in the budget. Would this um, help us save any of that money that we were going to save by decommissioning or just kind of repurpose in it's, a way that we need? So it wouldn't be a cost savers. Uh, it's not as much money as if you wanted to do the maintenance and the upgrades for the cruisers to make them keep them as cruisers operating okay. out at sea, hunting submarines and, and doing all of those things. So you wouldn't operate them as often. You wouldn't have to have as much fuel. So there's some savings on the operational side. Uh, again, if, you're, if the plan is to eventually put an Aegis ashore in Guam, you're looking at three to five years before that's in place. So what are you going to do in those next three to five years? Uh, the priority shouldn't be on cost efficiencies. The priority should be on what tactical tactics require, what operationally is necessary, uh, certainly in the deterrence calculation. And so put that ship there, the priority should be how can it provide you that deterrent value mm -hmm. until you've got these other assets online. Great. Um, so yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned this requirement for Aegis Ashore and that that's been around since more than a few years, yes. I guess. Is that right? Yeah. And as I, as I kind of mentioned before, um, this we still don't. We still haven't really agreed on a system in, in Congress or in DoD to develop on Guam. Um, we last year the requirement was just to, to study it, um, what kind of architecture we put on there. But um, yeah, I, I do think Admiral Admiral Davidson has has specifically said Aegis ashore, and yeah. he. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say he he actually wasn't big on it because of the command and control element. And, and I think there's a rightful concern. It's going to take some time to work out the requirements and what specifically makes sense. Because you're going to want a more distributed than what you see maybe in Romania and Poland. You're going to want to have a distributed uh, system, Aegis Ashore system in Guam. The other part of it is, while those requirements and those capabilities are coming online, you do have a command and control capacity that's, that would be able to do that that's resident on these cruisers too, the CEC. So for three years, while you, or three to five years, as you're sorting out the requirements and working out the bugs in that plan for an Aegis Ashore, what that should be, uh, for Guam, you've got this cruiser that's there that you could use for an interim. And, and again, I stress, it's an interim fix yeah. until you get something more robust and more capable. Right. Um, well, yeah, so if I could dive into the kind of hmm. Aegis, Aegis Ashore debate, what we're actually um, going to develop on Guam, what's going on here? Um, yeah, we, Admiral Davidson has named Aegis Ashore. I think he actually testified to that um, in, a, in an Armed Services Committee hearing to Senator Fisher. He, he named explicitly Aegis Ashore would uh, deliver the capabilities that we need now and into the future. Um, it's, 
it's more advanced, it's our, it's our most advanced regional missile defense capability, right, um, compared to the THAAD and Patriot batteries that um, would intercept a missile in their uh, terminal phase of flight. The, the SM-3 interceptors especially could intercept a missile in its mid-course phase of flight, um, which allows for more time to intercept something as advanced as uh, the DF-26 in China that we're, that we're dealing with today. Um, and I think we'd also be able to plug in the, the SM-6, which can intercept cruise missiles into the uh, Aegis VLS model as well. Um, you mentioned before um, what people are saying about integrated missile defense, and I know that some people think uh, Aegis Ashore isn't sufficient for defense of Guam, and that something a little bit more complex, like a, a disaggregated Aegis combat system sort of architecture might be better, where we um, distribute sensors shooters and fire control across the island. Um, and I, th I think that makes perfect sense. I'm sure that would, that would provide a great defense. But I think the emphasis on Aegis Ashore, at least from you know, maybe Indo-PACOM's view, is that it's uh, a turnkey system uh, that we can deploy quickly while meeting Indo-PACOM's requirements. Mm -hmm. um, we, we've done Aegis Ashore before on Poland and Romania. And, and this one doesn't have to look totally identical. But we have that experience um, engineering and engineering that architecture. Um, and I also write about in, in that paper that I, I think should be posted in the chat that um, the Aegis is also highly extensible. So eventually we can, we can build Aegis to shore and then add on to it. Um, we can um, add on distributed sensors and shooters or plug in maybe even PAX-3 interceptors or something into the VLS modules. And, and you kind of talked about talked that, that earlier. We have um, the CRAM there, at least in the short term. We can. The CRAMs, I mean, exist. It's not being utilized. It was used in Afghanistan uh, to protect the forward bases, operating bases. And the geography of Guam, I mean, certainly at Anderson makes sense. And down in Big Navy, depending on what the threat factors, I mean, the geography allows you to do something like that. Again, you don't want to turn these things on because it is like a failing system. And unless you know there's a cruise missile coming in, it can it, it doesn't discriminate from small fishing boats and a cruise missile necessarily. Right. So you want to make sure that you've that you've got a threat inbound. So there's a downside to it, but the geography of Guam would a lot is is I think would be feasible for a CRAM as a cost-effective something that exists already to get it there. Uh, certainly a lot cheaper than a Patriot missile or S, or an SM6, uh, which you want to use probably for your higher end, more capable inbound threats. So yeah. there's a you have to discriminate and also put put the right missile to the right mission uh, for what for the threat you mentioned, the DF-26. That's a certain hypersonics. What kind of defense are you going to use for that? Uh, but to stress, Guam's not a tiny little island. It's small, yes. But there are mountains. That it is, it is uh, fairly large when it comes to a footprint that you're going to defend against crews and missile defense. And so you're going to have to have a distributed defense pattern. You're going to have to have multiple places for sensors. And I mentioned Big Navy, which is Apra Harbor, which is about the middle part on the island facing towards the Philippine Sea. Anderson, which is the entire northern point of the island. So you've got three vectors of attack you probably have to cover. Big cliffs that, that just drop right into the ocean. So you don't have, you're not worrying about shooting over a village or a town or something like that. Um, you lived on Guam, right? Oh, yeah, I grew up there. So <laughs> yes. we, got, we got some expertise here. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and I, I think that's... That's a good point, um, and I know that uh, the MDA is is still st studying what architecture, you know, the final architecture to develop on Guam, and um, just kind of the, the point that I want to drive home is that um, what MDA 
them trying to figure out the exact architecture shouldn't preclude us from moving forward with at least the, the starting Aegis Ashore system now. You know, we, we know that we're going to need at least SM3 interceptors on the island. Um, the, the Senate tried to, tried to get the ball moving on that last year when they provided money for those interceptors. Um, I think that's the right idea. Um, and I think that the, the bottom line here is that we should pri be prioritizing uh, speed over the, the perfect details of, of the architecture for now. Uh, so one, one thought on this is that uh, we've got ourselves into a situation where time is of the essence, mm -hmm. and if I'm reading correctly, uh, Patty Jane, on this, and that is we should do a multi, you should do the, the Aegis Ashore, which will take some time to get the requirements sorted out, and as you're doing that, doing the field testing, sorting out the requirements, and then actually breaking ground at the same time, you still have an urgent need today, mm. and so the, this is where other creative options should be looked at. Uh, and that should not be at the expense of taking a, an Arleigh Burke destroyer, which does have full capability for air defense as well as anti-submarine and anti-surface warfare, and anchor it to Guam or to Japan for, for ballistic missile defense. Better that that ship is doing all of its missions far away from land. So that, that also should be in the calculus, is in the near term we need to free up those ships to go do more forward deterrence and presence operations. They should not... And, and options that should be considered should prioritize untethering those ships and those aircraft uh, from fixed locations like Guam and Japan so that they can be more mobile and out, out at sea and in, in air. Yeah, that, that's a, a great point to add on because yeah, we know there's a lot more going on in, in China and in the Indo-Pacific than just their, their missile threat to Guam, right? Um, so yeah, this, this has been a great discussion. Um, we have a few more minutes left. If you want to um, want to wrap this up, you had some thoughts earlier on just kind of the the PDI in general and, and the, the history of our, this this oh, rebalance yes. to the Indo-Pacific. You know, is it are we behind? Um, do we need to get get moving? What's going on? Oh well, I certainly would echo Admiral Harris's uh, his comments again and is get on with it. We've we've studied this. And there's a, there's, a, there's a term of art inside the Pentagon, it's a paralysis by analysis. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a wealth of analysis that's already been done uh, on the defense of Guam. Certainly some of the technologies and some of the sensors have been updated, but the core need and requirements are largely unchanged. So there are things that can be done that should be done, like breaking ground on some of the sensors for Guam, the emplacement of some of the batteries and building where they would operate. Uh, those are all things that you know you have to do. So get on with what you know you're going to have to need. You know, launch platforms, sensor bases where you put these things. And then be conscious of the near term. You know, free up those, those destroyers so they can go do their full range of missions while cruisers that may not be as useful, repurpose them until you've got your full battery and full sensor suite on Guam. Again, that's in a couple of years from now. Mm -hmm. But the need is here today. Uh, the other thing about the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, I just have to stress... Um, the way that the financing is done. It's the services that foot the bill. So Indo-PACOM makes a request, and unless the top lines move upwards in the same amount of what Indo-PACOM commander's asking for, the services have to then reprogram out of their man, train, and equip, which is why you saw this huge acquisition bill. Mo the vast majority of the PDI this year was acquisitions, which yeah. was not asked. We didn't expect that. No. And so just to reiterate, your top line has to go up to meet their needs. And again, the services are going to provide the manpower and the assets to deliver that. But they're programming for man, train, and equip. And so by having more money that is in there, such as a line item, for operations forward, geographically defined, 
would be very helpful for Indopaycom if their forward presence is what they really want to see more of. The other question is posture, you know, building infrastructure. That was a key thing. And just to reiterate, in the SAS markup, they reiterated, the Senate reiterated the importance that future PDI budgets must include an infrastructure element that has an emphasis on infrastructure mm -hmm. for that forward posture west of the dateline. And that's something that's been said for over 10 years from Indopaycom commanders for a while. So that was my, my just wanted to reiterate that message on Pacific Deterrence Initiative. It was a lesson learned during the rebalance, so it's not a new lesson. Um, and again, don't, let's not suffer from uh, paralysis by analysis yet another year uh, as the Chinese threat just continues to metastasize and to sharpen. Great. So thank you. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a great note to, to start wrapping up on. I love the term paralysis analysis. I think, yeah, we've been, we've been seeing that since, you know, since you've been at Indopaycom, and I'm seeing it now with um, defense of Guam. Um, we know that the, the China threat is real and that um, we need to move forward. And I, I think that you were kind of getting at the Senate bill did, did add some money in, on PDI on top of that top line. I don't think we know what's in it yet until the, the mark gets released. But um, look, looking forward to seeing that. And, and you know, hopefully Congress will, will make progress this year on defense of Guam and um, our, our PDI initiative to, to enhance deterrence in the region and um, defend against China. Yes. So um, we're about out of time, uh, so we're going to wrap up here. Um, thanks so much, Brent. This has been a, a great conversation. Um, I, I believe that um, our audience will receive a survey after the event that we'd love for you to fill out. Uh, so yeah, thank you. Thanks to everyone for joining us this morning. And, oh, and if they have any questions, we'll be sure to get back to, to you all uh, with responses in a, as quick as possible. So please also send any questions.